0: All right, good morning and welcome once again to downtown church. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Revelation. If you don't know where that is, as we have said before, find the maps and hang a left. All right, Revelation chapter 3 is where we are. Today we're going to be wrapping up a series called Dear Church. So in this last book of the Bible, there's a series of seven letters that were really from the Lord Jesus to seven specific churches. And the Lord Jesus uses the Apostle John to pen and send each of these letters. And what's interesting about these letters is that they're not canned letters, okay? These are letters that are unique in nature. So we just had our graduate recognition fairly recently and. Uh, Each of those graduates are about to get ready to write a bunch of thank you cards because their mama's going to make them, right? And I remember that. I remember writing those notes and those letters, and I was appreciative, but here's what I found myself doing. I found myself writing the same thing over and over again just because I was writing several of these. But that's not what Jesus is doing in these letters. Jesus is very intentional with his words to each of these seven churches. And I think that's important for us because we're all a little different and every church is a little different. Every denomination is a little different. And so what I think we experience as we read these letters is we see us somewhere in these letters, maybe in multiple letters or maybe there's one that stands out to you in particular and you're just like, wow, that one hit me square between the eyes. My encouragement for all of us is And this is really any time we interact with God's word, but may we not just read these words. May we not just think about a letter that was sent to a church, but may we think about where we are in this letter and how the Lord Jesus might want to speak to us through his word this morning. Amen? So many theologians believe that this particular letter is unique because not only is it speaking about a specific church at a specific point in history but many theologians believe that it's also foretelling of what the church in the last days will look like and i do believe there will be a progression leading up to the return of christ and that might be soon it very well might be and here in this letter we see some characteristics that will be evident in the church in those last days. And so my hope for us as we read and study this letter is that we would allow the Lord to kind of safeguard our hearts as we learn about some things that ought not be in the church. So with that being said, let's now go to the word of God together. If you're new here at Downtown Church, what we like to do is to stand for the initial reading of God's Word. So if you would and you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. into the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked." The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In the other six letters that we've looked at so far, Jesus had one good thing, at least one good thing to say to each of the six churches we've studied so far. Things like uh, there were brothers and sisters in Christ that were enduring severe persecution. There were some who were excelling in their love for God and for other people. There were some who were dirt poor, and yet they were remaining faithful to Jesus. And so Jesus is mentioning these things as well as correcting some things in these other churches. But he looks at the church at Laodicea, and what good does he have to say about this church? Absolutely nothing. Not one good quality does Jesus mention. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're going to learn that Jesus is really correcting a lot about this church. There's a word for the study of God that... When we hear the word, some of you just might make your eyes, eyes kind of glaze over a little bit. And the word is theology. And for some of you, when you hear theology, you're like, oh, oh, boring, you know, I'm not really into that. So theology literally means the study of God. And theology is important because what theology teaches us and what theology reveals is what we actually believe about God. So, there's actually a lot of theology in you right now, whether you realize it or not. So, this is important in this letter because what Jesus does is he starts out this letter and busts out some theology on the church. And he does that by letting them know who the letter is from. Look at verse 14. Into <clears throat> the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation so this letter is from none other than Jesus and here Jesus calls himself the amen now you might be thinking wait a second isn't that like how you hang up when you're praying like you know and all God's people said amen you know we're done right so amen literally means verily or truly and we probably don't use those words a whole lot either I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. As I heard one pastor say years ago, he said, All the promises in the Bible find their yes in the Lord Jesus. So the Bible's filled with lots of promises for God's people. And every one of those promises is really rooted in Christ. And so Jesus is quite literally the Amen. He is the verily, the truly, He's the assurance. That those promises are true. He calls himself the amen. Then he calls himself the faithful and true witness. As we're going to see in this letter, this church thinks they're in one condition. But the faithful and true witness, the Lord Jesus steps in and says, no, let me tell you where you actually are. Let me tell you where you really are. And then the third thing he calls himself is the beginning of creation. Which is an interesting statement. So about 300 years after the Lord Jesus was here in this physical world, in his physical form, there was a guy named Arius. And Arius had this belief about Jesus. And it was really based off of this verse. And Arius' belief caused a lot of controversy. So much so that this belief was called the Arian Controversy. So here's the controversy. Arius believed that the Lord Jesus was created by God just like you just like me the problem with that belief is if you believe that the Lord Jesus was created by God then you're stripping the deity of Christ away from him and that's a big deal the gospel ceases to exist if you strip the deity of Christ away from Jesus but God's word is very clear Let me show you one of those texts. I could show you several, but just check out this one. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. If you haven't picked up on who the Word and him is here in this verse, drop down to verse 14 in that same chapter. It says, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Here's the point. The word is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. A part of the Godhead. And this Jesus, through this Jesus, everything was created. And so when Jesus says, I'm the beginning of creation, we're thinking chronologically. But that word beginning can also mean Primacy meaning supreme. Jesus is the most important being there is in all of the universe. And Jesus reminds the church of that here in this letter. I share all of that with you because we're going to see as we work our way through this letter, you're going to see those themes popping up as we study this letter together. Which brings us to our first point that we're going to look at this morning. So, we're once again thinking about what this church was dealing with, but also considering what the church in the last days will look like. Number one, the church will become lukewarm. The church will become lukewarm. Look at Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, So I know we don't do this a lot anymore, but writing letters, okay? So if someone were to write a letter to you, they'd probably talk about some things going on in your life. They probably reference what you, what you do for a living, or where you live, or your house, or things that are going on around you. And that's actually what Jesus does here for these Christians. So Laodicea was a part of a tri-cities area, okay? So Laodicea was here, and to the north, about six miles, there was a city called Hierapolis. Has anyone ever been to Hot Springs, Arkansas? few of you. Okay. That's basically what what was popular in Hierapolis, hot springs. And so people loved to travel to Hierapolis and experience the natural hot tubs. Okay. They enjoyed those warm waters. It felt good. It was used for medicinal purposes. It had a lot of minerals in it, so it wasn't great for drinking, but a lot of people loved their water just to enjoy. And so To the north, six miles, was this warm water. To the east, about 11 miles, was another city called Colossae. If you've ever read the book of Colossians in the Bible, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. So Colossae didn't have hot springs. What they had was mountains around them. And coming down from the mountains were these beautiful, clear streams. And so the water would get down to Colossae and it was cold and it was refreshing. Just tasted really, really good. And so you got Hierapolis with this wonderful, warm, steamy water. And then you've got Colossae with this beautiful crystal springs type water. Then you got Laodicea. Laodicea did not have hot springs. They did not have clear streams of water. What they had was kind of murky, lukewarm water. Wasn't anything to write home about. It it wasn't anything that they were even excited about. So here's what the people in Laodicea did. They were like, okay, our water's nasty. Let's fix this. Let's get water from somewhere else. So what they did was they built a fancy gutter system called an aqueduct. And they funneled this water from Colossae to start with. They were like, we need that cool, refreshing water to drink. And so they work and they work and they work and they get this gutter system built, this aqueduct built. And the water begins to flow and everyone's excited and the water gets to Laodicea and lo and behold, it's not refreshing. It's not cool. It's been baking in the sun all the way down those 11 miles. And then it gets to Laodicea and it's just kind of, yeah, like not exciting. All right, well, that was a bummer. So maybe we should try getting the warm water just six miles away from Hierapolis. So they once again built another aqueduct. And they're funneling the water now from Hierapolis. And everyone's waiting. They're like, all right, hot tub, here we come. And the water comes to Laodicea. And lo and behold, you guessed it, lukewarm. Lost its temperature. So here's what's happening. This is what the people of Laodicea know very well. They know lukewarm water well. And they hate their own lukewarm water. They hate the fact that the water from Colossae is lukewarm. They hate the fact that the water from Hierapolis is lukewarm. And so when Jesus writes this letter, this would have hit home. They would have been like, oh. Look what it says again. Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm... And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that the way we live our lives, it it gives off an aroma of sorts to God. It's as if God can smell the quality of our lives. And if our lives are, are spent on flesh and self and indulging the flesh and indulging self we give off a stench we're kind of stinky to god but the adverse is true too if you live a holy life if you repent of sin and you walk forward in righteousness with the grace and strength that god provides through his spirit you give off a fragrant aroma and it's pleasing to god and we see something similar here just a different sense It's not smell that the Lord Jesus references here, it's taste. And apparently there can be a pleasing taste and apparently there can be a very displeasing taste. To the point that when the Lord Jesus gets a taste of the church, if it's lukewarm, he spits it out of his mouth. Yesterday, our kids had soccer tournaments, hence the sunburn. And as we got done with the soccer tournaments, I went to my car and I hopped in the car and I had a bottle of water. I was like, oh, good. And I went to take a sip. I was like, that's that's not what I thought it was going to be. That's similar to what the Lord Jesus is explaining here. He's saying, I got a taste of your church and I don't like it. I got a taste of your church and it's really despiteful nothing good. So what does it mean to be spiritually lukewarm? I think it means a couple of things. I think one, there's a lack of passion, meaning there's no longer an excitement for the things of God. You're neither hot, you're neither cold, you're just lukewarm. No excitement, no emotion. And please keep in mind, this is, these are Christians that the Lord Jesus is writing to And so these are people who believe that there is a God. These are people who believe I'm a sinner and I need a savior. They believed in God the Father. They believed in God the Son who gave his life as a ransom for many. And they also believed in God the Spirit who dwelt inside of them. So they believe this gospel. They had that theology and doctrine in mind and yet... I think if you were to honestly ask them about the state of their heart spiritually, it was just kind of blah, you know? Not hot, not cold, really no emotion. I once heard of a pastor who, when he would interview people that wanted to work at the church that he pastored, he would ask them, he would say, When is the last time that the cross of Jesus moved you to tears? Let me ask you that question. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to raise your hand. Just think about it. When is the last time you thought about what Jesus did for you and it actually moved you emotionally? If you believe this stuff, if you you really believe in that incredibly great sacrifice on your behalf for you, then church, let's get real. That should do something here, okay? It should do something to us on an emotional level. When we sing worship songs like we were just singing earlier, we should do more than just be on autopilot because we know the song and we like singing. We should be interacting and engaging with our emotions, When we read and study God's word, here's a temptation, when we read and study God's word, we might be tempted to engage intellectually, thinking about concepts and ideals, history. But God does not want us to just engage with our minds. What did Jesus remind us was the most important command in all of Scripture? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart the word heart is a hard word to translate into English we we put heart but the word heart literally means the seat of one's emotions so here's what that means God wants us when we gather here when we read our Bibles at home When we're thinking about the Lord, even just driving down the road, he wants us to engage, not just intellectually. He wants our hearts to be moved. I think the Lord Jesus looked at the state of this church and did not see that. I think there was an emotional disconnect there. There was a lukewarmness. I believe there's also a lack of backbone for lukewarm Christians. I think lukewarm Christians are quick to compromise when it comes to truth. They don't quickly object to God's word being twisted or manipulated. They don't stand up for what God has said to be true in his word. Instead, they become PC Christians, politically correct Christians. And can we get real with the state of our nation? This is happening all over our nation today. There are whole churches that are allowing the word of God to be twisted and manipulated, even by the hands of those pastors. There are whole denominations that are bending and flexing to the opinions of man. And church, that's a dangerous place to be. It just is. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, hey, I'm the amen. As John says, Uh, John's gospel says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. May we heed this rebuke, church. May May we consider do we have a passion for the Lord? And are we remaining resolute when it comes to biblical truth? So, number one, the church will become lukewarm. Number two, the church will become proudly self sufficient. Look at verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Uh, You may recall, when we learned about the church at Sardis, uh, they were a very wealthy city, a very wealthy church, and that was very similar to what Laodicea was experiencing. So they had these well-traveled roads that went through the city of Laodicea. And so the economy was good, business was good. So what that means is the people in Laodicea had money. The church in Laodicea had money. And then Jesus looks at this church and he says, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I don't need anything. But then Jesus looks at them and says otherwise. To contextualize that, to to put that in more modern terms. It's as if Jesus is looking at the state of this church, and it's like the pastor and maybe the staff of that church, or if you were to ask them, hey, how's your church doing? It's like they're saying, hey, we've got great facilities. We've got a big budget. We've got all these programs. We're good. We don't need a thing. And yet the Lord Jesus looks at this particular church. He says, you think you're good, but you're really not. Look what he says in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so Jesus is countering everything that they were thinking about themselves. You say you're rich. I'm telling you you're poor. You say you're prospering. I'm telling you you are to be pitied. You say you need nothing. I'm telling you, you're wretched, blind, and naked. I believe this will be a hallmark attitude of the church in the last days progressively moving away from Jesus. I believe we're going to be seeing more and more churches that are good at drawing the masses, and I think their sermons will make people feel good. And I think people will leave feeling happy. But there can be some danger there, right? The Apostle Paul talks about this. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to what? Suit their own passions. Please. Please. Please beware of a church that always tells you what you want to hear. Please. I'm I'm begging you, if you ever leave this church, not that we're perfect, but we're trying really hard to read and study God's word as it is. But please beware of a church that tells you what you want to hear. You don't go to a doctor so they can tell you what you want to hear, right? That's not what the co-pays for right? You are going to a doctor, so they're honest with you. So they tell you what's really up in your body, what really needs to change. And the great physician, the I am, the faithful and true witness steps in to the life of this church, and he writes them a letter. And he lets them, hey, things aren't looking very good for you right now. Gives them that brutal, honest truth. Years ago, there was an older-looking church, but they had this uh, archway. And you had to walk under this archway to get to the church building. And when they built the archway, it it originally said, We preach Christ crucified. And that kind of summed up the state of that church at that point. They were faithfully preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus. And disciples were being made. And then years go by and things change, leadership changes, and over time that church began to change. And Vines started growing up that archway and eventually it started covering up parts of the words. And at one point it read, we preach. Which also summed up the state of the church. They weren't preaching Christ crucified. What they were preaching was moralism. What they were preaching was something that would make you feel good. Even politics, preaching the thoughts of men, no longer was the word of God the standard. Eventually, the vines grew even more, and it said we. Once again, synonymous with where they were as a church. It was all about them. And I think this sums up the church in the last days. I think that's what the church in Laodicea was experiencing and that is a dangerous place once again number three the church will become desperately needy look at verse 18 I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see And so Jesus looks at this church and he says, let me tell you what you need. You don't think you're needy, but let me tell you what you you need. He says, you think you're rich. What you need is my gold. Buy from me gold so that you may be rich. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that true riches are not found in piles of money around your house or in your bank account. Or in an annuity, real riches that last forever are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people experience riches untold for all eternity. And he's looking at this church and he's saying, you've missed it. There were a couple of things that Laodicea was known for selling. And we see these pop up in the text here. One thing they were known for selling was, was these nicely... Handmade wool garments. And Jesus says to them, Look, you think you're good with your clothing, but what I tell you is, you need my white garments that it might clothe your nakedness. They also were in the pharmaceutical sales industry. They'd sell medicines, salve for your eyes. And Jesus says, You think you have the right medicine, but I'm telling you, you don't by my salve, that you may see. Jesus was highlighting over and over and over again that what they needed was in Christ, not in what they could come up with on their own. I want to clarify something here. We're all desperately needy, okay? This isn't just the church in Laodicea. This isn't just the church in those last days. You and I are desperately needy. None of us are righteous. No, not one. We all need Christ. But the church in the last days and the church in Laodicea, what they need is a church that will get back to what the Lord has called them to do, to be faithful stewards. Let's lastly consider this. Number four, the church will need to humbly repent— and get right. Look at uh, verse 19 here. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so maybe you've heard the analogy of how you motivate a donkey. You can use the carrot or you can use the stick. And Jesus actually uses both here. And he starts with the stick. In verse 19, he says, hey, I will discipline you if you don't repent. If you don't come back from being lukewarm, I will discipline you to get your attention. But then he moves to the carrot. And what does he say in verse 20? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It doesn't say that the Lord Jesus is going to come kick in the door, that he's going to bang on the door till you let him in. No, he knocks. The Lord Jesus knocks. A lot of times we use that verse for evangelism. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I don't think it's bad to use it for evangelism, but these words were written to a church. They were written to brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think what the Lord Jesus was teaching this church and what I think we can glean from this is the Lord wants us to experience a closeness with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door... I will come in and sup with him, as King James Version says, right? That's what I grew up remem- remem- rememberizing, Memorizing. If we will open the door to the knock of Jesus on our hearts, we'll experience a closeness. This church was not experiencing that at this time. And Jesus offers this carrot, this invitation that they might experience this once again. church, Let's be reminded, God has not changed. He has not changed at all. And I can't look in your hearts this morning, but can I let you know a secret? Jesus already has. He knows exactly where your heart is. Maybe you are similar to the church in Laodicea. Maybe there's a a lack of passion in you for the Lord. Maybe there's an emotional disconnect in you. Maybe you've not been loving God with your heart, not like you should. Whatever the struggle, whatever thing the Lord might be highlighting in you this morning, I urge you, open the door. As the Lord Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart this morning, allow him to come in so that you might experience that intimacy with him again. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're all going to take a moment, and I would encourage you to consider how you might need to respond to God's word this morning. Maybe as you think about your personal walk with the Lord, you see there's not a whole lot there. Maybe you feel the Lord Jesus kind of knocking on your heart this morning. I would encourage you not to be ashamed of that. Lord, we are your church. We don't claim to be a perfect one. Whatever is in us, Lord, that is off, may we, as your people, just say yes. Whatever you want whatever you desire to see in us whatever you desire to do in us may we open the door and allow you to come in and resume that seat as lord of our hearts and lives lord if there's anyone here that realizes they're lost they've never confessed that you are lord they've never repented of their sin I ask that you might convict them of their sin and remind them of your great love for them, that they might be saved today. I ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand, and if you would, let's sing. The altar is open.